0: Well, a good evening to you here on this middle evening of of Bible school. If you're like me, you perhaps feel a, a bit heavy with the with the weight of of what we heard, and I appreciate the teaching um, that we're getting there in that first session. And I hope that here in this second session that we can we can make the switch tonight. I'm grateful that even though we face lots of issues and lots of false prophets and and lots of uh, things in the culture, including media, that shapes our uh, sh- shapes our culture. I'm grateful that we have a promise from God. I read in, in John sixteen this morning, uh, a promise where it says that when the Spirit comes, he will he will guide you into all truth, and that's really all we need, right? I think that it's all right to talk about uh, the things that that I'm talking about here, and hopefully you have been have been learning about them and have indeed been been thinking about them and maybe you're thinking about them and coming out at a different spot than, than something that I'm saying, and, and I think that's okay because I'm just a man speaking. But if we have uh, the Holy Spirit of truth, that, that singular truth, uh, and we know that He will guide us through uh, these times. If you weren't here last night or the night before, Maybe you're disconnected uh, a little bit from what we're discussing here, and if you're feeling lost or would simply like to hear more, I'm going to make an ironic suggestion to you, and that is use your technology. (laughs) Um, And maybe you'll be able to catch up a little bit. Um, There are podcasts, and I think Michael said that there are videos, and so you can use uh, our our church website, weavertown.org, to find those. Really, though, I do want to thank you all for... We're coming again on this middle night of Bible school, and I hope that we can learn some things tonight. Before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we're grateful for your presence with us through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for that, how that guides us in your truth. And I pray as we study again that you would direct our, our hearts and our minds, and that I would be able to accurately and faithfully share your truth, all for your glory. Amen So just a little bit of review from last night. we talked about um, some words that you may may never have heard of. We talked about uh, that that technology or media is is something that powerfully shapes cultures worldwide. It really changes us in how we think and and it does that because it 's loaded with ideas. It comes to us and not only is it loaded with ideas, but it comes to us at a rapid rate of speed, so quickly that we we can't even really. Think about it. It juxtaposes or or it sets up these ideas uh, where it fools us into caring about things that are not important, and it distracts us from actually caring about the things that we should be, the things that are important. We talked about celebrityism, the the fact that America loves celebrities, and we worship celebrities. And we talked about escapism, and we're going to talk about that some more tonight. And we wrapped it up by talking about addiction. And I, I suggested three ways... And here are the three. First, it was ask yourself, what am I filling my mind with? And I hope that's a thought question. I have a question for you here on number two. Read good books. And I'm going to, I'm going to let you answer this. And if there is nothing, then, then we'll just simply move on. Why is the distraction of books, how is that any different than the distraction of technology? Does anyone have any input on that? How is it different? Why are books okay? Why am I recommending books and uh, saying maybe we should be careful about our technology? Books aren't random Okay? There's a there's a purpose to them. There's no ads in books. <laughs> okay. All right, that's slower true. Speed. Sorry. Slower speed. It comes at a slower speed and that w- that is one thing. We actually control the intake We have to engage, which is a word that we'll talk about tonight. We have to engage when we're reading a book. What if it's a digital book? Okay, or an audio book. Yeah, what? What is? How does that change? We're we're reading books on technology today. I do. There's Kindle and Nook and lots of things. I think I think that um, there's something. There, there's something to um, a, a book and, and I guess it can come through technology as well but it's different if we're reading something as to just just intaking it and uh, I have even experienced using, using, um, using audio books that when you're, when you're listening to it you're not completely engaged things are flying over you a little bit more easily Good. I, I, too, see a difference. It is, it is different, and that's why it's important for us to read, read good books. I'd like to also talk a little bit more about number three here at the beginning. Be present in the moment rather than be, being distracted by media. Sherry Turkle is a professor and a psychologist at MIT, and she comes at this from a, an entirely secular stance. And I recognize that we I, I'm talking this week about us being careful about what we think about that. Um, but I think that it's interesting. Um, she, she has written several books. In the 1980s, she wrote a book called The Second Self. And in that book, she said that technology was probably more than just a tool. It's actually a part of our life. It actually is going to become a part of our life. That was in the 1980s. This was a long time ago. It was before, before cell phones even. And she predicted or forecasted that uh, that, that would become a, a part of our life. It has. Then in the 1990s, she wrote a book called Life on the Screen. And in, in this book, she said that people are going to use technology to explore alternative identities, alternate identities in which you can be uh, what you choose online and, and yourself. You could remake and rethink yourself. And this was before Facebook, and this was before social media came to be. She said that this is, this is going to happen and, and people are going to, to be able to, to see new things. She thought that this was positive. And, and the reason is because she thought that it would, they would be able to, to take those experiences and apply them to their real life. But she said that she stepped back after these things came out and she realized that that kind of became their life. They, they didn't really take anything from that and apply it to, to real life. And so in the, in the 2000s, she wrote a book called Alone Together. And in that book, uh, the title really says it all there, Alone Together. Um, she said that since we have more means of connecting, we're actually doing it less. We're actually connecting less. And so what changed her mind? Well... Before, she thought it would fix their real lives. She thought technology and all of these things would fix their real lives. And instead, it became their lives. And we as humans, we want to be connected. We want to be be together. And yet, at the same time, uh, now we have experienced, I'm sure some of you have experienced, being present in other places through our phones and through other media. It's hard to be all there in today's society. Even though... um, We have fewer conversations even though we have probably more connection. It affects our relationships in ways that we don't really understand always. And we choose uh, these shallow relationships that come to us through social media and things like that because we want the empathy. We want some kind of recognition uh, to come to us. And we we want to do it without commitment. We want to do it without having to actually engage in someone else's life life. And one of the classic ways that this comes to us is is people say I'd rather text than talk. It's it's easier, right? It's it's handier. It means that it doesn't it doesn't take as much time sometimes and, and to to text an apology is entirely different than to to give an apology face to face because it's different. It has it has shaped us in in ways, and we're used to projecting ourselves on social media. You can make yourself look like you are living a good life, and like your life is just really really good. And we're used to projecting that online, and and we count the likes, and we control and edit our lives to show what we want. The problem is that technology doesn't just, and this is this is still what Sherry Turkle says that changed her mind. Uh, technology doesn't just change what we do it changes who we are and who we become and it does that in in three specific ways that are kind of fantasies these are not actually true ways we put our attention it says that we can put our attention anywhere we want it it says that we will always be heard and especially number three it says that we will never have to be alone because humans we hate to be alone and so in, in hating to be alone, we actually expect more from technology than we, than we expect from each other. We, we turn to tech uh, because it, it hits us kind of at a vulnerable spot where we're lonely, but we're afraid of, of really, really connecting with someone, and so we turn to the illusion of companionship without the demands of friendship. And so we, we turn to these, these things called technology. Interestingly enough, Sherry Turkle, who, who, again, is not a Christian, she suggests four places where we need to find solitude, where we need to get away from our phones. And she says that, that places are better because times don't necessarily work all the time. And I'm just going to stop here and, and ask you if you can guess what are, what are some of these places that this secular psychologist is saying we need to step away from our phones. Where are some places that you think we should step away from our phones? Mealtime, mealtime is one of them that, that Sherry Turkle suggests. Put your phones away. Bedtime. In the, and, and since we're doing a place, uh, rather than mealtime, it would be around the table. Or instead of bedtime, it would be in the bedroom, right? Those are two of the places that this secular person is saying that we need to get rid of our phones. Another one is in the car. She says that we don't need to, when we're, when we're traveling, that's time where we, we have to, to connect. And the other one that she suggests is on vacation. Because when we go on vacation, we don't really actually leave behind all of the, the things that are distracting us. Interesting. Four places that we should maybe leave that behind. I've talked a, a lot about Neil Postman and his book, Amusing Ourselves to, to Death, and I think this will probably be my last time, but I would like to read the intro or the foreword to his book. How he begins his book is very real, and I just want to want to give a little bit of a preface to this. He wrote this in 1985, which, believe it or not, is one year after 1984, and, and the reason that that's important is because 1984 was a, a prophesied year. George Orwell, he wrote a book entitled 1984. And, and this has become a classic. And in 1984, George, George Orwell suggests that Big Brother, the government, is going to rule our lives. Okay, that kind of gives you a preface to this. By the way, I'm not necessarily um, saying that, that George Orwell's book, 1984, or Adolf Huxley's book, which, which will also be mentioned here, are that great reads. They're, they're kind of interesting reads. But I want you to, to catch what, what Neil Postman says here. And I'm going, to, I'm going to read at length here, so uh, you can follow along on the screen if you'd like. We were keeping our eye on 1984 when the year came and the prophecy didn't. Thoughtful Americans sang softly in praise of themselves. The roots of liberal democracy had held. Wherever else the terror had happened, we at least had not been visited by Orwellian nightmares. But we had forgotten that alongside Orwell's dark vision, there was another, slightly older, slightly less well-known, equally chilling, Aldous Huxley's, Huxley's brave new world. Contrary to common belief, even among the educated, Huxley and Orwell did not prophesy the same thing. Orwell warns that we will be overcome by an externally opposed oppression. But in Huxley's vision, no big brother is required to deprive people of their autonomy, maturity, and history. As he saw it, people would come to love their oppression, to adore the technologies that undo their capacities to think. This is some of the things that we've been talking about already. What Orwell feared were those who would ban books. What Huxley feared was that there would be no reason to ban a book, for there would be no one who wanted to read one. Orwell feared those who would deprive us of information. Huxley feared those who would give us so much that we would be reduced to passivity and egoism. Sounds like today. Orwell feared that the truth would be concealed from us. Huxley feared the truth would be drowned in a sea of irrelevance. Orwell feared that we would become a captive culture. Huxley feared we would would become a trivial culture. In 1984, people are controlled by inflicting pain. In Brave New World, they are controlled by inflicting pleasure. Catch this. In short, Orwell feared that what we hate will ruin us. Huxley feared that what we love will ruin us. This book is about the possibility that Huxley, not Orwell, was right. I think that gives a good overview of what we have already learned here in the first two nights. (coughs) Just pause here for for any thoughts, any thoughts that you have on what we have talked about, and any questions, maybe. All right. Well, tonight we're going to talk about some wrong Christian approaches, and I put I put Christian in quotation marks, because it's maybe something that we should not be doing. The first one is avoid it and it will go away. This is with the withdrawal method that I talked about earlier in the week where we are not of the world. We're not in the world and we're not of the world. We're completely removed from it. Everything becomes so offensive that we put up these walls and we build those walls higher when we become more offended. Does this work? Not really, because we're people, right? Where is the line of the fall? The line of the fall is not between the church and the world. The line of the fall goes right through our heart. That's where the line of the fall is. It's not between the world and the church. In the past, people have had these great ideas, and they thought that we could build these buildings, and we would separate ourselves from the world out there. And we would build these, these gorgeous buildings, and people would move in, and they would be separate from the world we call them monasteries did it work well in some cases maybe it did but the problem with what the problem with monasteries is that when they built them they invited people in and right along with that came in sin they invited sinners in as a church we can try to keep the bad stuff out but the fact is that as soon as as soon as you have a church, you've invited sinners in. Another reason that this doesn't work is because Jesus has commanded us to go into the world. The Great Commission in the, in the Gospels say, Go! It doesn't say that we should protect ourselves. And so the withdrawal method doesn't work, A, because we can't avoid it, and B, because we shouldn't avoid it. Another approach is to just listen to Christian music. I'd like to hit this from a, from a number of, of different angles. First, what does the fact that it's actually Christian mean? What is a Christian song? Is a Christian song written by a Christian? What if it's written by a Christian but it's about something that's not Christian? Or what if it's about what if it's by a Christian but it's just not true? Or what if it's true but it's not written by a Christian? What if what if it's by a Christian but it's not about God? Or what about it, if it is about God, but it's not written by a Christian? What if it's by a Christian, but there are bad things in it? Okay, do we, do we see the problem? The thing we absolutely must realize is that Christian should not primarily be an adjective. It should be more like a, a pronoun. It should, it should be another name for us. It should be another name for a, a child of God. The other issue here is that Christian entertainment is still what entertainment, and if it's true that that entertainment changes how we know and think and makes us people who want to be amused and just, just have our senses desensitized, we should we should rather we should not just be amused uh, by the world. We shouldn't be somebody that wants to do that but instead we should engage it I'm going to I'm going to venture out on a on a limb here and ask a question Postman says that entertainment makes us silly people if that's true then then doesn't Christian entertainment make us silly Christians I think it's a it's a tragedy to go to Barnes and Noble's or a bookstore and to see some of the great works of of Christian writers put beside some of the works that just don't matter at all some of the things that are not important for us today the false prophets that crit is talking about those books are are hiding the the good books if entertainment makes us silly doesn't christian entertainment make us silly christians this comes out in podcasts and, and YouTube channels and, and a whole lot more. And I really hesitate to, to name titles and podcasts because I know there are those among us who are are interested in that and things like that. And I want to be clear that this is not necessarily it's not I'm not necessarily those things saying those things are sin, it's not necessarily wrong, but it's certainly not the solution to this problem that we have of having bad things in the world. Our goal should not be to convince others to listen to this Christian entertainment or this Christian comedian so that they don't have to listen to the one who is profane. That doesn't really solve any problems. We've been given fluff and is that what we want? Again, again, hear me say that I'm not saying that those things are necessarily wrong, but it's not the solution. And maybe some of you are bursting at the seams here with a question uh, about or a defense about Christian entertainment. What is Christian entertainment? Here's the mistake that it makes. It draws the line that we talked about earlier this week and says that everything on this side of the line is good and everything on that side of the line is bad. In reality, not everything on this side is good and not everything that is on that side is bad. And some some churches... To, to try to solve this they say okay we'll only allow acapella music and while that does cut a great many things does that does that solve it the most popular acapella group today has two openly gay members and it pushes the lgbt agenda one of the members who does claim christianity has worked with michael gungor who says that there is no that genesis is not literal he doesn't take uh, a literal Genesis account. And not only are they bringing us their artistry in Christian music, but they are bringing us the music of the world. What do you think of that? What does God think of that? Does, does something as simple as saying, just listen to acapella music, does that actually work? Well, maybe not really. Here's another thing, and I want to just land on this and quickly leave because it could open a, a whole another can of worms. I debated about bringing this up, but I think it will be uh, useful for us. There's a rating system that is used for the movies that we, that we watch, and this is helpful, but it's not the answer. And here's why. Because Christians are not the ones giving these movie ratings. And that means that the values that they are using are not our Values and they should not be our values. They're not the same as us. So an R-rated movie in our minds might be wrong, but the Passion of the Christ, the, the story of Jesus' crucifixion, is, is an R-rated movie. Should it be? Yeah, probably because it's it's brutal and it's shocking to us. But does the fact that something is rated R mean that it's actually worse than something that is rated? pg-13 and i say most definitely not because some of the some of the movies that are ranked tame or mild are really not they're carrying ideas that we should not be messing around with especially especially in sexuality and language it changes our thinking and this stuff should not be changing us it's stuff of the world it's the underlying ideas that are sneaking in and just because it's clean does not necessarily mean that it's acceptable either all of these things fall into the trap of trying to answer the question where is the line where should i draw the line and we need to understand this fact that purity and excellence and holiness are not a line it's a direction it's a direction that we are that we are walking in that we should be walking in and i get the image of of Pilgrim in the book Pilgrim's Progress where he is in the city and the people are trying to convince him to stay in the city and he runs away closing his ears saying life life eternal life live above the triviality of the world it's it's not necessarily a line God has created us with gifts and talents and abilities and hope inside of us we're going to talk about that that word hope and he's created us with that so that he can call that back out of us to help us to help build his kingdom. And it's what can give us value and purpose here on this earth. He has created us in his image that we can build his kingdom. So maybe the question is not where should I draw the line, but how do I live as a Christian in this entertainment-based culture that we are living in? What is my salvation for? As a Christian, we talk a lot about what we're saved from. We're saved from sin, and we're saved from death. And we're saved from hell. And if that's all there is, hallelujah. That's enough, right? That's great. That's amazing. And we talk about what we're saved to. We're saved to the glory of God. And we're saved to his kingdom. And we're saved to a new heavens and a new earth. But what we should understand is what is our salvation for? While we're here and while we're saved, while we're living our lives, what are we responsible for? What is the scope of our concern? How far How far does that reach? The right approach is, how should I live as a Christian in an entertainment-based culture? How? With the right goal. First, we need to have the right goal. We need to be fully engaged. We need to seek out the lost. Our goal should be to engage those around us and to show them the light, to show them Jesus. We should... We should take them deeper into life. How can we follow the commands of, of Jesus Christ to go when we're just staying in and separating ourselves from the world? If we don't go out into the culture, how are we going to reach it? Here's one of the differences between a good song and a bad song, by the way. If a, a good song, a good book, a good whatever will take you deeper into life and make you ask questions about it, a bad one will distract you from life. Good expression makes us stop and question and makes us think. And that's why I think that even though a book, like, or a book series like the Chronicles of Narnia, which is, which is fiction and it's not real or it's fantasy, the allegories and the para- parallels that we find in that book can take us deeper into life. It can answer some questions that we have. There are moral lessons. It takes us deeper. And secondly, it's with the right mind. And so we're fully engaged and we're not amused. Don't stop thinking. We talked about this last night. If you let entertainment decide what you think or what you become or what you're going to listen to, then you're going to miss a lot of things in this world. If you're letting someone else do your thinking, then it's probably uh, not a good thing. Many times culture is is begging for conversation. There are popular songs and even books and, and things that say life is, life is worthless, life is just a game, life is going to be over, and we have Christians, we as Christians have the answer for that. We have hope. We can bring the hope into the world that has lost it. It's what our worldview is defined by. Hope is a crucial aspect of the biblical approach to life and the world. Peter tells the persecuted church in First Peter, which is the book, the, uh, the book that I said that you, sh- you all should read. It says to always be, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for you the reason of the hope that is in you. So while maybe we have heaviness about this, maybe it's, maybe it's tough to live in a culture where we are being shaped by something else. Maybe it's tough to live in a culture where there are false prophets. But we have the answer to that. We have hope for that. Sadly, in our culture, hope, the word, has been kind of redefined into something that we use. It's, it's kind of trivialized, and it's nothing more than wishful thinking. We say, I hope I get a p- good parking spot, or I hope this sports team wins, or I hope Winter Bible School is interesting tonight, and wishful thinking lacks because it's it's looking for hope in something. It's not looking for hope in something in someone deeper than that. But biblical, biblical hope is full of certainty, because biblical hope is not a hope for, it is a hope in. Biblical hope rests squarely in and on Christ. He is our answer, the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer of us. And so we can have hope uh, in, in this. Now, often Christians miss this hope in in two different directions. And I'd like to to talk about both of these. One is optimism, and the other is despair. Optimism is this feel-good expression of Christianity, this positive alternative that we have. And so we can go to get all kinds of positive self-help books and self-help advice. And there's an offering of, of a positive alternative from Christians. Positive alternatives. Is life positive? No, life is hopeful. Is that the same thing? Well, positive ignores all of the, the tough things in life. It, just, it ignores the despair and the pain and the sickness that is in the world. But hope looks that straight in the eye and it actually does something about it. It gives an answer. Some of the, the popular shows in the world are ones where people come into a situation where there has been a lot of despair. Maybe there's sickness or maybe there's a cancer patient or something like that. And they show up at the, at the home of a family who's in the, depth of the depths of despair. They've been knocked down by life. They have been defeated. Things are not going well for them at all. And what happens is this, this group of way too excited home builders sends them on a vacation and says that you are going to come back to a place that you never imagined. And so while they're gone, they get this sweet home. There's three-car garages and jacuzzis and entertainment centers, and there's just a complete makeover. Amazing, right? And they take this sweet house, and they plop this fancy, expensive, beautiful home on top of these people's problems. And then they drive off. They drive away. And it's great, because as humans, that's, that's basically the best that we can do, Right? We can we can offer stuff when people are struggling. We can offer stuff. We can distract them, but that's not the Christian message. The Christian message is more than that. Jesus does not just put heaven on top of all of our struggles, but He was willing. Christ Himself was willing to come down to this this vile world where we live. This He lived in the culture as well. Jesus did, and He was able to look our problems in the eye, and He came to the, into the the depths of the darkness of the despair of the world and the depths of the darkness of the despair of our human hearts. And he was able to, to speak hope into that and to offer an answer to the problems that our world is facing. Life isn't positive. Life is hopeful. We do the culture a disservice when we go into the culture and we say that life is just positive. It's ignoring some of the things. We need to produce hopeful things. On the other hand though, despair is not the answer. Despair gives us this sense of escapism and and it makes people assume that the world is headed straight to hell and there is nothing that we can do about it. And so all we're going to do is just survive and then heaven. And then we can escape this whole mess. And I think now is a good time to talk about the fact that, that we should we are of another kingdom. And so we need to, to learn to, how to live as strangers and pilgrims in this world. It's true what, what, what Peter says again in First Peter chapter 2. He says it in, in verse 11. He says, Beloved, I urge you as strangers and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lust, which, which wage war against your, against your soul. But it's interesting that Peter follows that right up with a way that we need to live in the culture. A way that we need to live in the world. Verse 12. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That's, a, that's the very next sentence that he gives. After he says to live as strangers and pilgrims, he says, but while you're here, live honorably. It says in verse 12. Keep your conduct with the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Because of Christ, neither optimism nor despair is an option for the believer. God came and lived among the world, and he gave us an example. We should do the same. The world, us included, we must be deeply broken for the Son of God to need to come and to die. But the truth is that he didn't stay dead. He is risen, and nothing will ever happen in the history of the world that can that can alter that identity. Nothing will put him back in the in the grave. And so despair is not an option either. We should not try to escape from the world. Live above the triviality. I won't spend much time here. But secular Secular uh, psychologists and social experts are saying that one of the reasons that people are, are experiencing identity crises is because we have ignored some of the important questions. Some of the important questions that we can answer as Christians. Where, where did we come from? Why are we here? How do we know what's right and wrong? We live in a culture where those things are, are completely being ignored and not being answered. And if we as Christians align ourselves with that, that then in, in hopes of becoming relevant, we're actually making ourselves irrelevant. Do not condone sin, rather warn of it. We need to also look at it with the right framework. We need to look at it with the right approach, with the right goal, the right mind, and with the right framework. And that framework for us is scripture. And I'm going to uh, talk about this a bit more. Um, tomorrow night we have, we have a framework. That answers kind of three important questions. So we'll get to that tomorrow night. I'd like to, to again come back to this, uh, this thing of hope. To wrap it up. A biblical worldview explains the profound goodness and the profound evil that is in this world in a way that no other worldview can. Nothing else can explain why there is good, why there is, why there is evil, why, why they are both found in the world. And not only in the world, but in our hearts, right? In our human hearts. And to take that a step far further, the, the biblical worldview offers hope for that. It offers the rest of the story. It says it doesn't end there. But it it commits these, these human hearts and it commits the world into the hands of a God who created and invaded both of those. And as a result, we can claim hope. I'm going to read Philippians 4, verse 8 to close. Finally, my brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We are to live with hope in this culture that is, that is shaping us into people that, that we should avoid becoming. We have the answer to the world's questions. Let's close, let's close in prayer. Lord, I want to th- thank you tonight for offering something to us as Christians. In this topic of of media and technology and in the topic of of false prophets and stuff, we have the answer, We we have hope, and we have Jesus Christ, we have a Savior who can save us from this world. I pray that we as Christians would learn how to live in this world, but not be of it, and that we could follow you and that we could engage the culture and, and show them that hope. I pray that you would be with us tomorrow as we put this into, into practice. That we would be able to, to show Christ to the people that we come in contact with. Thank you again for, for your hope. In your name we pray. Amen.